Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, friends, and welcome to New Books and Irish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Avril Earls, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Elaine Farrell and Leanne McCormick about their 2023 book, Bad Bridget, Crime, Mayhem, and the Lives of Irish Emigrant Women. Elaine and Leanne, welcome to the show. Thank Thank you for having us. It's such a pleasure to be able to uh, chat with you at long last, um, although the book only came out a few months ago. But I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourselves. And Elaine, why don't you go first? Perfect. Um, So I'm a reader in history um, at Queen's University in Belfast, um, and I teach mostly on British and Irish um, social history. Um, My research focuses predominantly on 19th and early 20th century Irish history, um, in particular crime um, and gender. Um, I've published three monographs to date, uh, one on infanticide in 19th century Ireland that was published by Manchester University Press, um, one on the Irish female convict prison published by Cambridge, and then this one, um, Bad British, which is co-authored with Leanne, um, and that's published by Penguin Sandy Cove. And I'm Leanne Cormick. Um, I'm a senior lecturer in uh, history at Ulster University, so I'm based up on the uh, north coast in Coleraine. Um, and uh, my research interests sort of stretch around uh, women's history, history of sexuality, um, history of, of medicine in, in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, and those are the areas which I've published on and also mostly which I teach on as well. Um, I was a co-author of the report into mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries in Northern Ireland uh, with uh, Sean O'Connell here at Queen's. And I'm uh, also the co-chair with Sean of the um, expert panel um, for Truth and Recovery, looking at mother and baby institutions and Magdalene laundries. Um, and I'm a co-investigator on a project, an HRC-funded project, Queer NI, with Tom Hulme at Queen's as well. And with Elaine, um, the uh, co-investigator on the Bad Bridget project. And along with the book, we have also an exhibition and a podcast as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're obviously both very busy. So again, thanks for making time for, for us today. <laughs> and I, I love that. I love that the book is published with penguins. I'm assuming you're thinking it's you're hoping it's going to have a good sort of public run of it. Yeah, we when we were given some um, papers and and you know different talks, we were really struck by the kind of interest people had in in some of the the stories, and then the same with the podcast. Um, you know, when we kind of put the podcast together, I was it was during lockdown, and I was kind of thinking that this was. Um, this will be really useful for my students because I was thinking, you know, they're stuck on their computer so much and, and actually they could go walking around and, and maybe be listening to, to the podcast rather than um, sitting reading. Um, so I was kind of had my students in mind. Um, Leanne, you had had a different audience. Yeah, I I mean, I love podcasts. So um, I kind of thought, well, I think it, I think we realistically we thought maybe our, I thought my mom might listen to it. You weren't sure your mom might listen no. to it. Um, <laughs> So um, I think that was it. We could see really after the podcast, as Elaine says, that the, the, the 
there was a real interest in the general public and I think that really then sort of swayed what we did with um with the book and that we could see that that the stories had really captured a lot of people's interests so that was sort of when we thought do you know what we will will kind of um uh go with with Penguin Sandy Cove and um pitch it at a, at a more general audience readership so hopefully hopefully that's worked yeah it's a beautiful book too really uh, and, and and the book itself is oh, just is wonderful really I loved it and um, I can't wait to use it in my class as well um, <laughs> classes many classes hopefully so uh I love how you launch each of the 10 chapters of the book with a single case study like Rosie Quinn and Annie Young the Toronto drunks the Anderson sisters but then really end up sort of telling the stories of hundreds of Irish women and even with all these stories, I get the sense that there are thousands to be told. So why don't we start with Bridget? Who is bad Bridget and how did you find her? Well, um, Bridget was a really common Irish name um, during the, the mid 19th century. But um, in the States in particular, um, as you know, um, Bridget and, and sometimes the more derogatory version, um, Biddy would be used to refer to Irish women as a group. So as a, as a cohort, like a group of Bridget's. Um, in particular, those who were working in the domestic service industry. Um, and so this kind of Irish biddy was often this like figure of fun or, you know, there's cartoons and um, images mocking her in, in many cases and, and, you know, kind of mocking how unsophisticated she is. And she doesn't she's so ignorant of the American way of life, doesn't know how to behave um properly and you know also sometimes kind of present as kind of muscular or brutish or ignorant um, and I suppose for us we in a way we wanted to kind of reclaim that name um Bridget and we also we were using the term um uh, bad Bridget for for quite a while just between ourselves when we were putting together our um funding applications um and uh I suppose we had we had been using it sort of in a nearly in a in a jokey way but increasingly we're like this this actually could sort of encapsulate you know what the story that we're, we're trying to tell although we we do always say about how we were um, concerned that it was it might be somebody's porn name so we had this genius idea that we would look it up on the google it to yeah, see do the research um that you know in case it wasn't but of course you know we were using a, a university computer so we're completely you know naively thinking oh it's all fine so who knows what's out there but i think it's best that we we don't know <laughs> we can't see it so when we were looking for the cases then we, we trawled um archives and libraries some of this you know this kind of archival material sometimes it was published sources as well looking at um charity records or looking at um various institutions looking at core and prisons and newspapers as well um, were a great source for us. And we're just trying to pick up all of those Irish-born um, women who, who kind of fell foul of the law. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, so let's get into some of these case studies. You have three case studies, Marion Canning, uh, Rosie Quinn, and Ellen Nagel, whose run-ins with the law were connected to sex. So sex for money, sex that led to unmarried motherhood, and perceived sexual impropriety among teens and young women. So what role did sex and Irish and or American ideas about sexual immorality play in shaping the experiences and perceptions of these quote-unquote bad Bridgets? Um, I think sex and, and sexual behaviour and this perceived, as you've described, sexual impropriety does uh, feature throughout a number of our cases. Um, and in some ways, for example, with somebody like Rosie Quinn, those um, Irish uh, ideas about sexual immorality, particularly those focused on the unmarried mother, um, 
somebody like Rosie Quinn may have thought that perhaps in in America the 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 ideas and the attitudes might have been different, but of course what she found was that they were they were very similar. Um, and again, that sort of stigma attached to unmarried motherhood was there was there as well. Um, and and we see that even for for some of our women who um, travelled when pregnant. Um, Catherine O'Donnell is, is one of the the examples that we case studies that we talk about as well in, in that the chapter on married motherhood and this was a woman who was relatively wealthy she'd attended a convent school in Ireland and she traveled to America pregnant with the belief that this bookmaker um father of of her her baby was going to come out after her. and of course he didn't and that's a really common theme that we saw sadly so many times this idea that this man is going to come and of course there is no sign of this man at all um, and again arriving there but finding that she couldn't get any charities to help her she couldn't find anywhere she couldn't afford to put her child um to be looked after and that was and, and to work at the same time so this exactly the same issues that women would have experienced in Ireland that they're experiencing in America as well. Um, but of course, then on the other side of it, we have somebody like Marianne Canning and um, as well, another of our cases, um, a woman called Maud Merrill, who very probably are entering um, sex work with a with a choice that this is a, a way to to make money. Um, we don't know, for example, how Marianne ends up uh, as a sex worker, or what kind of her path is is into that. But, you know, for many women, it was a way to uh, to make money. It was a way with sort of better working conditions often than, say, with, within domestic service. Um, and, and all sorts of, of, of things may have may have led, led them down that path. But again, the same situations that probably they, they may have experienced in Ireland, too. But I suppose one of the key things for women like Marion and, and Rosie is that they're um, away from home and they're on their own. And those two women are very clearly on their own. And they've travelled as teenagers. They don't have a support network. And their situations would have been so common um, as many Irish women. And that's sort of that key thing about Irish immigration, travelling on your own and being left without um, without a support network and being vulnerable then to all of the things that come along with that. And of course, then the the stubborn girls, um, you had mentioned Ellen Nagel, um, so her, we can trace her family back to Cork. So her parents actually migrated first and then they sent for the children a few months later. So they obviously want to, wanted to get set up themselves um, and then before they bring out the, the children. So, so it's interesting looking at these cases where we can see those kind of survival strategies as well. And that was fairly common. And um, so in 1902, then when she's around 17, she ran away from home. Um, the newspapers describe her as being a dashing little blonde. Um, and when she's tracked down a week later, she, she her pockets are full of um, theatre souvenirs and she's known to be obsessed with the stage. Um, and she's actually on her way to a theatre um, when she's, uh, when she's um, tracked down. So her father has her arrested and he and placed on probation for stubbornness. Um, so this means she, she's, you know, under caution she has to be on good behavior but a year later she's arrested again for the same offense and this time she's sent to prison and you know she she kind of blames she she, when she's asked you know why she did it or when she has to kind of give an account she talks about bad girls and bad girls tempted her out onto the street but you know as you have mentioned these kind of charges the reality is you know this charge of stubbornness is a way to control girls behavior because there's a fear that you know actions as a teenager could shape the rest of a girl's life or a woman's life and you know that fear that oh she's on the wrong path and um, because of her uh, sexual behavior it's just all the attitudes the kind of um pervasive attitudes at the time yeah it had really eerie parallels to the magdalene laundries as i was reading that chapter it was like ugh, 
give me the, the yeah and i mean you do see those those very much this this idea of prevention um yeah. that you know girls because that's what what generally they were very young women are, are placed in in institutions to, to kind of to prevent bad behavior even when there hasn't been any actual bad behavior that's come across but they're spending time with bad companions or they feel like they're staying out late at night and all of those things so i think there are while while that charge of sort of stubbornness wasn't wasn't a charge in Ireland, it was the same yeah. you know those same sort of ways of behavior. controlling yeah. female behaviour. Um, and, and again, when we see it, there there's there's boys and young men are not been placed in the same way at all. So this is very very gendered. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so many of these bad Bridgets uh, made choices that they undoubtedly knew were at odds with the law. Uh, I'm not, maybe not, maybe not Ellen Nagel, but certainly um, Marion Canning, for example. But others were put into bad positions by lovers and husbands and other family members, as you mentioned. So Annie Young in the chapter on child neglect comes to mind immediately, but also some of the stories you share in the Letitia Anderson chapter. So how much of the quote unquote bad Bridget immigrant experience was shaped by forces and people outside of these women? control well we really see a range of offenses i mean they are you know going from say something like stubbornness or drunkenness petty theft and um, right up to serial killing so there is going to be a, a range of of backgrounds there you know there's some women who we can see that um you know in their in their version of events anywhere and in, in other people's versions of events they have somehow ended up um say involved in um particular crimes you know thinking about women who are in the sex industry who are saying about being trafficked um or you know they have arrived at the port essentially somebody has taken them they thought they were getting a job as a servant all their money is taken we see um we see some of those um kind of examples but we also see a lot of agency coming through and i think it, it, it's important to, to kind of highlight that the women's agency like annie young so so that case that you have have mentioned um, came to us through child protection agency mm-hmm. records, um, and those records are fantastic because you get a glimpse of living conditions, mm-hmm. what what the the homes were like. You know, the, these inspectors or agents, as they're sometimes called, are going in and and describing what the family home is like and what conditions the children are living in. Um, and Annie Young um, had. Uh, had come up um, in these records and through those records we we know a bit about her so she comes from the west of ireland which is where i'm from um so so her case kind of the worst ones come from and young is brilliant (laughs) excuse me she's my favorite no Um, no no, she's (laughs) um so you know so we can trace her her back there and she emigrated in the early 20th century she got married in the u.s she had a son and he died as an infant. She had a daughter. She left her husband, um, she says, because of his bad behaviour, probably relates to infidelity. Um, and so she's raising her daughter alone in Boston. And we can see her, we pick her up in different institutions. She's obviously trying to seek help in order to, to ensure her survival and the survival of her um, little daughter. So in 1908, then she's arrested for keeping a disorderly house in Boston. Um, and that triggers the involvement of the child protection agents because of her daughter. So she's gone to prison and now the daughter has been left with the neighbour, but the neighbour is saying, I can't hold on to her for very long. Um, and the investigation goes on for months and months and it eventually results then in her daughter being taken away from her. So we can kind of see, yes, there are some things there that's outside her control, as in when she left prison, so she was into prison um, a few months later, she was sent to the state farm um, for a year. 
Um, and when she comes out of prison, she returns to, to the child protection agents and she says, you know, I'm sailing home to Ireland and I'd like to take my daughter with me. And they refuse. They say in their notes, they say they didn't even try um, to make that happen. So we can see that in, in those cases, that kind of separation from her daughter has been kind of put upon her. Um, but her agency is there too. You know, she was she was running what was a, a disorderly house where where we can see that um you know from some of the descriptions it's obviously there's uh, a brothel um operating she's there's alcohol um involved as well um so we can kind of see in those cases that okay yes there are some aspects where where some of these women could be presented as victims of their circumstances but also they're making choices here and for some of our our women who are involved in um particularly those who are who make careers from theft um, they're making a, a, a very clear decision um, that this is profitable and they have their strategies um, and they, you know, one woman, Elizabeth Dillon, um, she particularly targets funerals. You know, she's she says about how she pickpockets the mourners and nobody suspects her because she cries well. Um, and that she's a and this kind of elderly um, woman. So again, you can kind of see that that she's making a clear decision there that this type of work is profitable, and therefore, you know, it's it's to her it looks like that it's it's worth the risks of getting caught. Yeah, yeah, and they make choices that are maybe not worth the risks of of the the you know, where they're, they end up. So like drinking yes. and drunkenness is something that you have a whole chapter on. And this is obviously a negative stereotype that's already associated. And what, what probably most Americans, if you ask them for a negative stereotype about Irish immigrants, it would be drinking and drunkenness, right? Alcoholism. Um, so I'm wondering what role alcohol played in the lives of the bad Bridgets when it's already part of the sort of larger narrative of, of immigrant Irish immigrants uh, stories. Um, yeah, and I think we came to this, you know, knowing that 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 alcohol was likely to be there and that sort of stereotype and things. But I think, you know, we really were quite shocked at uh, the sort of the sheer numbers um, of women who have been arrested for crimes relating to um, uh, to alcohol mm-hmm. um, in between. Um, the 1880s and, and 1915 in the Boston House of Correction, it's about 82 percent of all um all women who are entering are for uh, crimes relating to alcohol. And we see sort of similar um, figures uh, in, in New York and Toronto as well. So it really is, it really is huge. And often that is, um, it's women who are arrested in, in large groups. It's like the, the group in the, the chapter on, on the Toronto yeah. drunks, you know, there's, there's a group of them who, and they're described so vividly by the, the kind of court journalists that this kind of um, group of, of stargazers as they're referred to and, you know, that, and their behavior in court. And that, that would have been fairly common, those groups of often Irish women who are arrested together. And that group's really interesting as well because it goes from, you know, Margaret McCormick, who's, I keep saying it's not a, not a relation, um, <laughs> who's, who's in her 80s to, to other women who are in their 20s. And they're clearly all, all, all together. But for women probably like Margaret and others, others um, of, of a similar age, you know, this their sign and their being arrested was probably while it was connected with alcohol, but probably they were homeless or they were living in, in very poor conditions. So you often do see that they're quite grateful often to be even to be sent into prison because at least they know they're being, you know, they'll have a, a roof over their heads and they'll be fed. So there's, there's a sort of measure of that, that happening as well. Um, but you can also see 
to how I suppose the stereotype associated with the drunken Irish does feed into these arrests as well and and the fact that when these Irish women appear before courts they're a more likely to be arrested and when they get to court they're more likely to be imprisoned um, and then that that sort of fulfilling that stereotype I suppose and that sort of that that continues and and these are women who are who are known as as rounders because they're going round and round in the system they're they're appearing in court they're being sent down they're in prison for a few days not long enough to to you know to dry out or or, or have any kind of, of their their issues dealt with but they're back on the streets again they're drunk they're re-arrested and they're back in the system again and again and again and and very much you know it's, it's sort of appearing and and then we have women you know who who very much play up to the the uh their their stereotype of being irish um oh yeah there's uh, eleanor david yes in toronto and she's, yeah she's outside the um toronto music hall um, and she's uh singing um but clearly the the policeman um isn't enjoying um, whatever it is uh, that she's singing and um, this is in in 1865 and so so the policeman kind of has to drag her along the the footpath um, and he needs to summon a bit of assistance because clearly she's uh elner david is putting up a bit of a fight and um, but she's playing up this irishness because she says to you know later when when she's kind of arrested and, and um charged she says that she loves whiskey and as long as there's a drop of irish bl- blood left in her body she's going to drink it um, and she says uh, she's not going to stop until the sods of the valley I think um, that's how she phrased it um, cover her um, but she wasn't the only she wasn't the only no, one no I mean you're I'm thinking about Catherine Ryan who's in, in Brooklyn in 1903 and she's basically saying that she drinks whiskey because you know she comes from a long line of, of drunken Irish yeah. and this is sort of presented in court as a as a reason you know yeah. as a kind of a justification for her behavior as well so you do get this kind of these sort of variety of of women and and of course um maggie smith who who says that oh, yeah. in new york who she says as well that she drinks it's it's medicinal um and that she's drinking because she's got uh she's got asthma um and that she needs to kind of drink and and whenever the um the judge is saying you know you're a, you're a dissolute woman and she's saying you know no um you know i'm an irish woman um and and this kind of thing that this is again nearly presented as a reason so you can see i suppose very clearly how nearly by there, there's so many things going on about sort of fulfilling that that stereotype but also then actually Irish women are been arrested in huge numbers for drunken behavior as well and of course alcohol was cheaper in North America easier to get um, and they're also women are often drinking on the streets because they're not um, welcome in in the sort of male dominated saloon bars so they're that public creating a public nuisance and of course that's mm-hmm. that's going to add to more arrests as well mm-hmm. yeah and then on the sort of flip side of the negative stereotypes of of Irish women in particular, we have Irish women who end up in domestic service. And so, so many of them do. Again, another full chapter on domestic service in the U.S. and Canada. Um, and that becomes almost an inextricable element of the Irish immigrant story and probably the basis for the model sort of Irish immigrant. Right. But with domestic service being so intimate and then this is what I love about this chapter is you sort of flip that, um, I don't know, the positive uh, stereotype on its head. Um, working and even living in employers homes there are so many opportunities for things to go bad so what did that look like in the stories that you uncovered yeah it's interesting with the the domestic service i suppose there again there was that kind of um stereotype and and the irish girls and women who who go to north america and um, the so many of them as you said so many of them go into the industry that it really does become synonymous um, with irish immigrants and um, the new york times actually um they say 
in the mid 1860s about the men, for, you know, from immigrants from Ireland, the men come to dig, the women to work as servants. So that is the, the kind of assumption. Um, and you're talking huge numbers, like 1850s, I think in, in New York City, 80 percent um, of the the women employed in homes are are Irish born. I and mean, then we see similar figures um, in Boston um, as well. But you're right, you know, it was kind of seen as, okay, this is a, a suitable job for girls and women because it's within the home. And there's, it seems like, like there's a protection there and bed and board is provided. And, and the people who are in the house were, are kind of, oh, they'll look after you because you're in the home. So it's kind of seen as, oh, this is suitable to go from your family environment into a working environment where, where you're um, working as a domestic service servant. But the reality is, is quite different. And I suppose we are looking for the cases that end in criminal or deviant activity. So we are going to pick up those cases where things went wrong. And that's not to say that this is the majority um, of cases, because obviously it's not. But we do see quite a lot. We see even women who um, who talk about even women who are working in the sex industry or they're working in other, you know, they're kind of making careers out of, of crimes. They refer back to years that they spent as domestic service and they do talk about how it was a tough job, long working hours, not particularly well paid. So that is suited for a while. But actually, for some of them, what they found is that, that, that their kind of criminal and deviant behaviour is more profitable um, or that it's, you know, for, for some of them, um, Maud Merrill that Leanne mentioned, she specifically says about how, you know, she that she had kind of moved from domestic service into sex work and that she didn't really want to leave because it was um, for economical uh, reasons. Um, so, the, and so historians initially kind of followed that view of, um, that you know that these women were protected, but I suppose if you're if you're looking at if you're looking for the criminal and deviant behaviour, you're going to find it. Um, we see women who really they see opportunities in domestic service. One of the women we um, include in the book is Little Annie Riley, um, and she pres- she's really um, she's described as being really good looking, really innocent looking as well. She kind of plays up her youth in the way that Elizabeth Dillon, who I mentioned to targets of funerals, she really plays up her old age. Um, so little Annie Riley, she gets jobs as domestic service, stay as a domestic servant, stays for a couple of days and then just ransacks the house. And in the night, she heads off, taking all of the, the loot um, with her. There's a couple of funny instances where um, one, one instance, she was so convincing that she that you know that that she needed help that a policeman actually helped carry her bags and these are bags that are filled with stolen goods and so here you have this this policeman not knowing that he's actually an accomplice um, (laughs) in her her crime but also we can see that they could it wasn't a stable job they were very they were let go for for various reasons and there was also a concern that actually they that this was that there were some strategies to kind of hire irish women um, as servants, work them really hard and then give them something that was completely outside um, their their abilities or their experience and then let them go and not pay them for the, the kind of days um, that they had, had done already. So we see some of those kind of examples coming up. So many of them lose their jobs quite easily and they're, you know, jumping from one job to the next. Um, one woman, uh, Kate Goley, so she, she was fired um, from her job as a domestic servant, but she was so annoyed um, she went back to the house the next day and she took an original art painting off the wall. It had been on loan from a dealer and she put her shoe through it. 
So we see her being picked up because of of that behavior. And then we can get a sense of what, and through those records, then we can get a sense of what her her domestic um, life uh what it had actually been like um, working within the home. And also, I think um, a lot of, of women working as servants are very vulnerable in terms of uh, men in, in households. Um, that this idea that, yes, they're they're living there. And yes, you've got your this idea that somehow if they were in this more middle class household, that would be fine. But of course, they were it's really classist. Yeah. yeah, they were vulnerable to men both coming in and out of the house, um, but also the men within a house. And, and yeah. again, if you're there, you know, you're a young Irish woman who's there in a big city on her own. It's very difficult to, um, you know, either resist what's going on or to have anybody listen to you or what do you do? Do you do you leave and then risk not being able to find another job whenever you've got such pressure on you to send money back home? So I think that often and particularly, you know, for young women, they were placed in really vulnerable situations as well. And this that wasn't just unique to North America. In an Irish context as well, we can see that you know there's there's research that has been done um, in intervening years about kind of what the Irish domestic experience um, was like. And and Jeremy's further refers to that when you know he's when he talks about how how women were were kind of vulnerable and um, that when he was looking at. Um, a kind of sex offences and he he says that in a sense these women had had um already been paid for you know this kind of fear that that these women like Leanne has said that they could lose their job if they resist and these kind of advances made and and we see some of those cases then come up in abortion records or in infanticide um or um uh, infanticide records or and then some of the child murder uh, cases as well yeah and so i mean this like the crime obviously crime is sort of at the core of the case studies that you've picked out to highlight in this book and some of these bad bridges as you've already noted were just straight up criminals right thieves and murderers and kidnappers and a a whole range of of um truly bad behavior uh which was often profitable and perhaps and certainly more so than than domestic service so what do you think we gain by examining their stories and how do these women complicate and stretch notions of irish emigration and women's history well i think one of the reasons why we um began the project and were interested in looking at the experiences of, of what happened to irish women in, in north america was that very often the narrative about um Irish immigration, if it included women at all, which very often it still um, sometimes sort of forgets, um, even though they were often at times the the majority of those who were who were leaving on on the the ships, um, but it often you know has this sort of rosy glow and is about how people went and made good and uh, you know how many presidents you can link to and and built the cities and and you know for women they it's about you know, about those successful domestic servants or becoming nuns or teachers or all those things. And all of that, you know, there's fascinating research there and, and really, really excellent work. But I suppose we were interested to know, okay, we now know, you know, there's been such brilliant work done on, on women in Ireland. We know what was happening. We know, again, all the the, the things that were um, often not not uh, going well for women in Ireland. So what was happening? How did that, did that suddenly change when you emigrated? What happened to, you know, to women when they emigrated and, and found themselves in those situations? Um, so I suppose that's what we were interested in. And I think looking at all of, of these cases in the round, and some of them, as you say, some of them are, are out and out uh, women who are committing crimes. There's agency involved. For some of them, you know the the crimes are are a way into telling us about 
an awful lot of the issues and the things behind you know, that are going on in their lives. But it's really important, I think, to look at that rounded experience to give us a, a bigger picture of what was happening, that this isn't just about it it went there and it was tough but you know what we we came through it and we all did really well for some people that was the case for others it wasn't and I think that sort of looking at that as a bigger picture to say this is the this is the story about about migration for Irish people in the past but also there's so many parallels with with uh you know people's migration situations right through the 20th and into the 21st centuries as well and by looking at these records too it gives us a sense as Elaine mentioned about the child protection records and all, you know often we get these glimpses of lives and experiences and relationships that we we don't get anywhere else and that's a way into giving us sort of you know much greater insight and much greater information, much greater understanding about that that immigrant experience and and both the positives and the negatives because often through that we we can see sometimes how people are, you know, able to kind of, you know, battle through. It's about yeah. it's about strength, it's about courage, it's about determination in many cases as well. So I think there's there's a mix happening there that by looking at these records and these types of experiences, we we get that that much richer picture. And so one of the things that I think is an important part of p- painting that Richard picture and which we haven't talked about yet is race and how race figures into the into the story, because, of course, you know, historians of this period will know that right that the Irish immigrants sort of figured in, a, in this gray area between not quite white, not black, and yet black and whiteness sort of shapes the world that they live in. So um, will you tell us a little bit about how the issues of race and class shaped these bad bridges in the world that they lived in? It's interesting with, with the records because we see race in the records in a way that we don't see in the Irish records. Hmm. So say the, the prison admission books in Ireland, they will record religion. Hmm. But in some of the records, that, some of the prison records that we have looked at um, for North America, it won't record uh, religion, but it, it will um, mention race. Um, so it's, it's interesting that that we see those kind of distinctions, which again gives us that kind of insight into what's considered important in, in the, the kind of wider context. We do see discrimina- discrimination against the Irish um, we see quite a lot, uh, particularly in the 1860s, 1870s, you know, they have ha- have travelled en masse, you know, they're this kind of mass group um, who have come over, often poverty stricken, the fears that they're, you know, taking all the jobs and they're um, really kind of milking the, the charity um, and institutions as well. Um, they, those Irish migrants then are encountering cultures and races that they wouldn't necessarily have had they stayed um, in Ireland. So we can see that kind of mixing sometimes, you know, in terms of um, marriages, in terms of neighbourhoods, in terms of different relations. We can also, and like Deirdre Cooper-Owens has done brilliant um, research um, around uh, this area as well. We can also see the Irish being racist themselves. Um, so one of the examples that we use to, to kind of explore that issue is the, the case of the Anderson sisters that, that you have mentioned, and they go by the name of Ida King and Stella Vanell. Um, and we can see the, the kind of racial tensions coming out there. So so these are Irish migrants. Um, and um, Ida uh, essentially cut her sister Stella off after Stella married a black man. 
Mm-hmm. And Ida was appalled um, at this. Um, and, and she was appalled at the way that, that Stella had dated black men before she had um, before she had married one. And this led to lots of fights then between the sisters. But it eventually resulted in uh, Stella stabbing her sister. Um, and the it's interesting because you can kind of you you kind of think like, oh, but these are Irish migrants who are are living in in poverty who are kind of in and out of the sex industry as well but yet there we can see that kind of um, discrimination coming out very very um clearly and they're they also have very detailed criminal records which we explore as well um in that that chapter they're really disruptive in prison they're constantly in trouble um, for talking out of turn they're you know not completing their work tasks they're being violent they attack staff members as well so they so sometimes when they're in prison if they're in prison together they kind of gang up together as well but but the fact that then one stabbed the other one just shows how deep this kind of racism was that you know that this um really you know it led to just the the total um destruction um of that relationship precisely because Stella had had married a black man yeah, I mean, it's it's really, really illuminating for thinking about this time period and particularly, obviously, Irish women's experiences here and how they fit into this North American world. Um, and now, before we, before we do our little sign-off and talk about what's next and where else folks can access this book and the other elements of the project that you've, you've given the world, um, you <laughs> teased sort of at the top of the episode that there's a serial killer in this book. And I think for fans of true crime, which this book should have a, a great audience with the fans of true crime out there, you've got to tell us about Lizzie Halliday and her story and where she fits in with all of this. Uh, well, well, Lizzie Halliday um, and I so first came across Lizzie Halliday whenever I was I was looking at a at um, a, the register for for Auburn Prison um, just outside New York and and I was like you know it said Lizzie ha- it said Elizabeth Halliday murderer and I thought okay well I'll, you know I'll just do a quick quick search here to see if, if she pops up anywhere before because I you know and I've, then I was like oh my goodness she has her own web page and uh, you know recently as well I mean I, we always say I don't know whether it's because we've you know. Is it is it the the bad bridge we've we've written about we've written a bit about her and then suddenly there is there's there's so much um interest in her and we'd never heard of her story as well before before we kind of had had come across her but you know she was uh the first um her sort of her her infamy came as well from being um the first woman uh to be sentenced to death in the US by the electric chair now she wasn't actually executed because um her sentence was reduced to to life imprisonment in a in an insane asylum um and she'd gone she'd been sentenced uh, uh to death for the the murder of um her husband and and two neighbors um two women um and one of the the things sort of about that case very much was that there didn't seem to be any motive for these these crimes. Um, you know, it wasn't about it wasn't about money. It wasn't it wasn't done seemingly in anger or jealousy or reasons that could be sort of suggested to the court why particularly a woman would have committed these murders. And there was so much interest in her that you can see that there are suggestions that she might have murdered. She had about five other husbands, all of who were quite elderly when she married them, but who all seemed to sort of, you know, have maybe perhaps suspicious deaths as well. Um, and at one point they even sort of the newspapers um uh, sort of suggest that maybe is she is she Jack the Ripper? You know, there are all sorts of of, of very outlandish accusations about her and and they describe in great detail 
um, how she appears in court um, and, and things like you see them sort of saying about how her, her um, like her skin was moist and that, that wasn't like what a lunatic's skin should be and her hair was, was I think smooth and glossy while you know a lunatic's hair as they describe it was supposed to be harsh and they describe her as looking like having a, you know, a nose like a pig and they describe her as the wolf woman and all sorts of, of, of things that's very much focused on how she appears and, and the fact that she she seems so strange um, in the court as well and showing very little remorse and nobody could quite understand what had, what had happened. Um, and she goes on then to spend um, her days in a, in a, in a, what was in it called a lunatic asylum. Um, but even there, you know, it doesn't end for Lizzie Halliday. She, she attacks, um, she's involved in an attack on one attendant and then she actually goes on to murder um, another attendant in the, in the asylum because basically she got very fond of this woman who was then planning to leave and and Lizzie just sort of couldn't couldn't deal with the fact that she was going to leave and and murdered her so I think whenever the New York Times when she dies in 1918 describes her as the, the worst woman on earth um, you know you can you can sort of understand that and see how much she had sort of captivated uh, the, you know the, the world as well and, and in her story. Yeah. Um, we have a few others no. too. We yeah. have, yeah, she's not the only serial killer. So we'll, we'll, yeah. we won't spoil that. We won't. Spoil that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You've got to read books yeah. to find them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you got to get the book for your summer holiday reading. This is definitely a, a great beach read, and I highly recommend it. <laughs> and for you know, just like I'm just like imagining taking chapters for and spreading it out across a semester, and I'm going to use it in my U.S. Women's History class that I'm supposed to be teaching in the next couple of years. Oh, oh. Uh, yeah. No, I can't. I can't wait. The students are going to just. <laughs> eat it up it's going to be great um but as as you mentioned at the top of the episode or at the interview um this is not the only way that folks can get access to the stories that you have collected of you know painstaking research over these last few years so will you tell us a little bit more about where folks can find the podcast and what what else we can expect um or or what they can look for from from this project um, so wherever you get your podcasts, you can you can find the the Bad Bridget podcast season one, and we can reveal that season two is is coming. <laughs> it hasn't quite been recorded yet, but it's coming. <laughs> um, so that that will come sort of so if you automatically so if you if you keep an eye for that um and that's going to look at some some new stories and some different angles and 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 different things about the bad bridget experience and if anybody is over um on the island in um at the Ulster American Folk Park we have an exhibition um that's currently in situ so it'll be there um until at least 2024 mm-hmm. um, i think maybe a little bit longer and uh, wow. um, and it's uh you know there's um illustrations from fiona mcdonald there's jan carson the novelist has written um all the the words for it and there's um uh, actresses who've done the the kind of voice pieces and and um, there's smells as well mm-hmm. tasha marks did some some smells so it's that kind of immersive um experience so so for anybody visiting they may want to to pop over to oma to have a look at that Yes, absolutely. Um, awesome. So the this has been this has just been really, really great. Thank you again for taking time with us. I think we've taken up a lot of your time already and you'll probably have many things to do. But before we go, will you tell us what's next for each of you? What projects? I mean, Leanne, you told us a little bit about 
um, one of your projects, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about that project and other projects? And Leanne, why don't you go first this time? Um, yes, yeah, so so um, I'm working on a project called Queer and I. So I'm, ver- I'm very much waiting for your book to come out um, with <laughs> with excitement to, to read to read that. Um, so yeah, that that's that's kind of uh, really interesting, and, and I'm particularly interested in in women um, and trying to trace sort of those female stories and and those kind of um, queer relationships very broadly defined as well. So that's that's part of what I'm doing. And then um, secondly, I've just sort of uh, started in a, in a new role as the there's the co-chair of this um, independent panel which is is kind of taking on work expanding on sort of the work that that um, I've been looking at in terms of mother and baby institutions and Magdalen laundry so that's that's going to kind of be working for two years and we'll be feeding into a public inquiry into those issues as well so that's kind of keeping me um, busy at the minute yeah and I am um starting a new project which is looking at um, kind of gossip and scandal across uh, 19th century Ireland and um, so using some of the the kind of crime um, and prison records uh, that I have have used for for previous work but also using incorporating some um, family papers as well and some um, religious records uh, too so uh, it's fun so far and we're always keen we kind of have lots of ideas about Bradbridge it could yes. go west or Bradbridge it could, <laughs> could go down under and um, so yeah. there's lots of places Bradbridge it could go as well I think too yeah we'll see oh please yes let's so much to look forward to and and like let's get you some funding for those yeah those yeah projects. <laughs> in the bad Bridget universe uh we really appreciate both of you making time to join us on the podcast today Elaine Leanne thank you so much for being on the show thank you um, thank you for um, yeah, make sure you pick up a copy of Bad Bridget for this summer reading. Bye.